this is Maureen. As we were getting this episode ready to go, there was a break in the Anthony Sanborn case. His 70-year sentence was vacated to time served. We don't have time to talk about it in this episode, obviously, since it's already done, but we will talk about it in the next one. And if you don't know who Anthony Sanborn is, listen to episode 22. Now for this episode. Hi, I'm Maureen Milliken. And I'm Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. Yes, you would do if you had nothing better to blah, do. Blah, blah, blah. I think, yeah. And we don't have an Anthony Sanborn update today because his hearing is still going on. Yeah, it's still, yeah. And we'll have one next time. Probably. We hope to. <laughs> that's the plan. Ooh, so that's it. Right, do we okay, have bye. <laughs> Good show. Do we have anything else to say? Before you start your... I don't think so. I do want to... During this hearing for Anthony Sanborn, there's quite a lot going on with We're going to have to do it a will, full episode. Yeah, it's going to be. It's very interesting. And if you hadn't listened to the first one, it would be good to listen to them like side by side. Before I start talking about the case I'm talking about, this case takes place mainly in the Bangor area. It's actually in Glenburn, Orono, but they're all around Bangor, which is Maine's third largest city, but it's only 33,000 people. Their surrounding towns are little. And it's pronounced Bangor. Not banger. Well, was I not pronouncing it correctly? I'm telling our listeners. But they'll know how it's pronounced by the way I'm pronouncing it. Or they it. may think you're pronouncing it wrong. Well, if they do, they can kiss my ass because I'm there not. There you go. So, anyway, no, no, I'm sorry, listeners. I didn't really <laughs> mean that. But 33,000 might seem like a small town to you. There's towns around it. So, the surrounding area has more people. If you look at Maine, Bangor is mid it's in the middle of the state, but everyone from the north parts to pretty much north and west come to Bangor. That's where they go shopping. I used to work in, and live in Bangor, and people would come do their monthly shopping if they lived in like Greenville or somewhere up north. That's I would a, just considered amend, a city. Yeah, I would just amend it that to say that it's in central eastern Maine. Yes. So that the far yes, west Maine, central eastern the Maine. far west Maine people... Ten more to go to Lewiston to do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I'm sorry. The Auburn Mall. I stand corrected. There are vast places in Maine where there's just nowhere to yes. do mall type shopping. There is. Well, not just malls, but just even grocery shopping. Yeah, you know, what malls were a thing. But just doing a right grocery or food deserts. Yeah. That's a podcast for a different day. So that's where this takes place, and it's fairly rural. Rural. <laughs> the rural juror. The rural. <laughs> On the morning of May 13. 2013, at 827, Christine Wiley of Glenburn, Maine, called police to report her 15-year-old daughter, Nicole Cable, missing. The last time she had seen Nicole, who they called Coco, was the previous evening, which was Mother's Day, at 843 p.m. Nicole had asked her mom if she could walk down the road, Spruce Lane, to meet a friend and, quote, get some smokes. Christine knew that Nicole smoked both cigarettes and marijuana, but the girl was not allowed to smoke in their home or on their property. Her mother was not really okay with it, but right. it seems like there'll be a lot of stuff in this story that you're going to be like, why are the parents okay with it? You just have to go with it. Okay. It's it makes it bumfuck sp- Maine. Yep, got it. Nicole never came back. Christine thought maybe she had taken off with a friend. Supposedly, her best friend's cousin was the person she was going to meet. 
When she didn't text or call, Christine worried. That was unlike Nicole, who was usually glued to her phone. Later, as an example of Nicole being phone-obsessed, Christine would tell a reporter that once, when they went on a camping trip to Moosehead Lake, Nicole was very upset that there was no coverage and she was unable to use her phone. But she didn't like camping much anyway. On Wednesday, May 15th, Nicole's mother spoke at a press conference put on by the Penobscot County Sheriff's Department. She was very emotional as she stood with her husband, Jason Wiley. And she said, I would like to say, Nicole, we love you. And if you're scared because you ran away, you're not in trouble. It's okay. If somebody has her, I don't care. Take her to a gas station or a park. I don't know what else to say. I'm waiting for you to call me and I love you. She was prompted by Deputy Chief Troy Martin to show the photos of her daughter she held. She held them up to the media assembled and said, This is my daughter. If you see her, please let authorities know. Please bring her home. Morton then told the media that over 45 members of various law enforcement agencies were working on the missing person case, federal, state, county, and municipal. The Maine Warden Service was searching the area, though they didn't give specifics about where they were searching. Mm -hmm. In addition, the FBI, National Center for Missing Children, Maine State Police Computer Crimes Unit, and the Bangor Police Department were helping with the case. Bangor was the biggest municipal police department close by, and Bangor, like I said, is 33,000. Glenburn's population is somewhere between four and 5,000 people, and I don't think they had a police force, which is why the sheriff's department was yeah. taking care of it. That's a lot of normal. small towns, especially yeah. if they're yeah, a rural area or if they're um, near a bigger city sometimes. Yeah, there are very few small towns in Maine that have their own How police well departments. Did. Yeah. yeah, it sure did, didn't it? That's a podcast for another day, too. <laughs> Does, rather. <laughs> Nicole's family had also set up a Facebook page called Bring Nicole Cable Home. By Wednesday, it had more than 2,400 members. We can't get that on ours. No. And had been the source of many tips. As we all know, a missing young woman sparks interest in the media and the public. By Thursday, May 16th, within 24 hours of the press conference, the Sheriff's Department had over 60 good leads. A post at the top of the Facebook page said it was believed Nicole had gone to meet someone who was using a fictitious name on Facebook. The story was picked up by the Boston Globe and New England Cable News, which is based in Boston. Flyers with Nicole's picture were posted on every telephone pole on Main Street in Old Town and all around Gledburn and in Old Town store windows. And Old Town is a town right near Glenburn, north of Bangor. It's west. It's about seven miles west, but it has like a town attached to it, and I don't think Lumber has actually... No, it's a just lot of small towns, away. like I'm sure a lot of us know there's if no we town. live in areas. There's no center. Everyone was on the lookout for Nicole, who was very petite at 5'1 and 90 pounds. She had brown hair and facial piercings, and it was all over the news. I it remember. was, yeah. But when a young woman is missing, people like... I think they like to like... What's the right word? Fret over this beautiful young... They like to be part of the drama. And it makes and, it more dramatic when it's a young woman. I mean, if it's an old, like, middle-aged guy with five o'clock shadow. I think, I think it makes people feel good about themselves because here's something they can feel self-righteously angry and upset about and get involved Although in. at the time they didn't know why she was missing. No, no, but even but when they're missing, you know, they if they thought she was missing because she was out doing drugs or ran off with a 40-year-old man or something, people wouldn't be as involved. But I think people like to feel like they have this crusade to go on and the damsel in distress. At a news conference Thursday, <laughs> now you like to have your soapbox moments. Yeah, I do, don't I? At a news conference Thursday, May 16th, Deputy Chief Morton was asked about the person named on Facebook 
the person Nicole had reportedly been going to meet. Later, we would learn his name was Brian Butterfield. The real Brian Butterfield had been questioned by police and cleared. He only knew Nicole in passing, if at all. And weeks before it was later reported, he had called police to tell them that someone was posing as him on Facebook in order to lure underage girls. At this news conference, though, his name was not given. Police simply told reporters that the person with that name, who was a Bangor High School student, was not believed to have anything to do with Nicole's disappearance. When asked if she had run away or was abducted, police refused to comment. The computer crimes unit was trying to track her phone and internet usage. When asked what physical clues they were searching for, Lieutenant Kevin Adams of the Maine Warden Service said, We're looking for clues, which could be footprints, clothing, any kind of clue that they leave. <laughs> you follow those clues and you should find the person. Heck. On Friday, May 17th, police reported they were looking for a black pickup truck, possibly a Ford Ranger, seen in the vicinity of Glumburn between 8 p.m. and 2 a.m. Sunday night through Monday morning. The Sheriff's Department stressed in media briefing Friday morning that they were only interested in black trucks in that specific area. They didn't want people from all over the state calling them or they would be inundated. Because there must be like 500,000 <laughs> Especially black for Ford Rangers in Maine. They were also asked if the public could volunteer to help search. They were asked that by a reporter. At the time, they said no. They would ask people not to try to help because the warden service had searched dogs on the job and civilian volunteers could potentially interfere with their work. They told the public tip lines are going to be open 24 hours a day. By now, the news of Nicole's disappearance had spread worldwide via the Internet. Despite the warden service asking the public to refrain from helping, on Saturday, Saturday, the day after that request, May 18th, six days after Nicole was last seen, Lieutenant Adams of the Maine Warden Service issued a call for volunteers. People who wanted to help with the search were asked to meet Sunday morning at 9.30 at the Glenburn Fire Station. They were told that the search area would include woods and swamps, so dress appropriately, have correct footwear, and wear hunter's orange if possible. They should bring their own food and drinks. What the yeah, fuck? Yeah. What? They're not gonna feed us. <laughs> Sometimes restaurants will will um, uh, supply food, but not always. Oh. Deputy Chief Morton told the media that the search had been focused on the areas of routes 221 and 43 in Gledburn, Hudson, and West Old Town, but wouldn't say why. During the week, the warden service had used a small search plane to search camp roads and other areas because there's a lake up there, Pushaw Lake, that there's a yeah. lot of camp on. In other areas, hard to reach by ground vehicle. Or by foot. The Down East Emergency Medical Institute also flew their plane, which had high-resolution imagery capabilities. Mm. Both agencies were searching the swampy areas and lakes. Pushaw Lake is the main lake in that area. Saturday evening, a church in Glumburn had a candlelight vigil for Nicole. People there expressed hope she would come home alive. On Sunday, May 19th, a week after Nicole was last seen, over 500 people showed up to help look for her. There were more than a dozen members of various law enforcement agencies and about 100 trained volunteers from 17 search and rescue teams around Maine. The rest were just people from the surrounding areas that wanted to help. It was the largest number of volunteers some had seen in that area in their years of being on search teams. I know that makes me sound like a horrible person, but I wouldn't want to be on one of those teams because I wouldn't want to find something mm. that's how you and i are different why you would want to yeah then why don't you ever do it um <laughs> i caught you in a lie <laughs> 
No, I've never had the opportunity. Yeah. Sorry, I was. And in lots of cases, they don't want the public. No, like I said, they don't because they do. They can mess things up. And in lots of cases, they get more people than what they need, and they actually send people out to places that aren't. They're not even really searching just to keep them busy and out of the way. That's true. Some look through the marshes, woods, and bogs on foot, but some used all-terrain vehicles or searched on horseback. All had to sign in and sign out to make sure that no one got lost or injured in the woods. Warden Rick Laflamme assigned team members to each 10-member team. He's one of the guys that used to be on Northwoods Law. Oh, he was? Yeah. I never watched that show. Did you like it? No. I did, and then I stopped when I started working for the papers up here. Oh, yeah. Because I liked it when I lived in New Hampshire because of all the main stuff, but then I found out how they manipulated things and also how there were things that happened with the warden service where they would let the crew of that show in and wouldn't let journalists in mm, and it bothered that's me. That's so. annoying. So he admonished, quote, if you go run rogue and someone gets hurt and someone doesn't know you're gone, we're going to be searching for you tonight and one search is enough for this town, I think. Mm. We're not looking for cigarette butts. We're not looking for soda cans or water bottles at all. We're looking for possibly a belt and possibly some jewelry or a cell phone. That's it. Yeah. I wonder if this was on that show. I'm 2013. Yeah, I don't know. At the same time this search was happening, the Maine State Police Major Crime Unit was at a house in Orono mm. with an evidence response team. Mm. Orono is a town eight to ten miles east of Glenburn, home of University of Maine. They didn't say if the investigation had anything to do with Nicole's mm. disappearance, although they were asked. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't tell them. Some searchers, community members with young daughters, weighed in with the Bangor Daily News about the case. And I, oh, you know what? I went to say at the beginning, I'll say it now. Almost all of my information I got from the Bangor Daily News because I did look at other sources and realized that all these sources had gotten their information from the Bangor Daily yeah. News. So I just stuck with the Bangor Daily News, which is a wonderful it, newspaper. It's always best to go with the primary source. Yes. And they are a great newspaper and they had, of course, great coverage on this. So yeah. Lynn and Matt McDonald from Alton, which is a little bit north of Glenburn, where Nicole went to elementary school, had three daughters and knew Nicole. They said it hit close to home and only their oldest daughter was allowed a Facebook account. We get to check it at all times. Nothing gets deleted. Anything suspicious, we take care of, said Lynn. Matt added, I think we're going to keep doing what we're doing. I hope some parents, they pick the pace up. I think it's been too relaxed. We've always been really strict. And this is, they're talking about social media because they knew when this story was coming out, it was the fake Facebook page. And I don't want to call it the fake Facebook page. It bugs me. In fact, I mentioned it in here. It wasn't a fake page. It was a bogus profile. It was a real page it was a real facebook page that would had lured nicole it the, was a fake person with a real page yes but, i agree with so that. I, I don't like it that they keep calling it a fake they don't know at this point they do know that facebook had a role in her leaving but they don't know i mean we've had a lot of cases all over the country where young girls take off with some guy like there's a you know that they've met on facebook yeah they didn't know so at this point no one knew where what had happened to her or at least No one in the public knew. I think the police had an idea. That night into early Monday morning, so Sunday night into early Monday morning, police conducted informational roadblock. Monday, they reported that both the search and the roadblocks, in which they stopped about 100 cars, which I'm surprised that many cars are out there on Sunday night Mm. on Route 220, yielded some clues, but they weren't going to share what they found. 
They also addressed online rumors telling reporters they were only following, quote, legitimate leads. What? Do you know, have any examples of what the online rumors were? They didn't have any, but people had all sorts of things. Oh, yeah, as always. And, you know, stupid comments. Yes. Then on on Tuesday, May 21st, came the news that Nicole's remains had been found. On Monday night, about 9.30 p.m., a game warden and his search dog found Nicole's naked body covered with brush near the Stillwater River in Old Town, about seven and a half miles east of her home as the crow flies. Police said they were searching in that specific area due to information from, quote, several different sources. Mm. After that, things moved quickly. 20-year-old Kyle Doobie of Orono was charged with, quote, intentional and knowing murder. I like that phrase. Mm-hmm. At about 11 a.m. Tuesday morning. Doobie was already in custody, having turned himself in for a crime he committed the year before. In June 2012, three days after getting his motorcycle learner's permit, he engaged in a high-speed chase with police, clocking in at about 136 miles per hour. Ugh. He ended the chase in nearby Howland by crashing into a state trooper's cruiser, causing $2,000 worth of damage but not injuring himself. At least he was wearing a helmet. Yeah, good for Kyle. The previous Thursday, May 16th, Kyle Doobie began his 90-day sentence for this crime. He turned himself in. He showed up at the police station to serve a sentence. It didn't specify, but I'm assuming... Right, so he was in court sometime between that yes, accident. Yes, and, he and was. That, right, I got it. Several that, bits so. of information came out after the charges were announced. It turns out the state police mobile crime unit had been at his house in mm. Orono the previous Sunday and Monday. But even earlier than that, the Wednesday after Nicole's disappearance, May 15th, members of Maine State Police, Penobscot County Sheriff's Department, and Orono Police Department were all at Doobie's house. Police would not answer questions about why, but the Bangor Daily News reported that, according to neighbors, the mother of the household, is how the paper Mm. called her, told police that Nicole had been at the home about a week earlier. Neighbors also reported that Doobie had been using his father's truck, a black Ford Ranger, to get to and from work. The truck had been impounded. Now, they didn't specify in these articles, but I'm thinking that maybe because of his motorcycle accident, he was only supposed to use a vehicle to get to and from work Mm. because later it'll come up again that he didn't have a license. Okay. And I was trying to figure out why and I'm like, oh, it's probably because of that accident. Did I... Doobie had posted the missing flyer on his Facebook page twice in the days Mm. Nicole was missing. He also posted this about his girlfriend who was not Nicole. I love these postings. Yeah. Uh, Too bad I can't really say the misspellings, you know, when I'm reading it. Okay, so don't with the drama. He spelled it (laughs) D-R-O-M-A. Let's get this straight. I, Kyle Doobie, all in caps, is and always will be with my girlfriend. We had our ups and downs, but we have worked them out, so stop talking to me if you are trying to flirt. And guys, you better stop hitting on her. I get crazy when I'm pissed off and I'm about there. Uh, When did he post that? During the week before he was arrested, between her missing. When she was missing. Tuesday morning, the morning Doobie was charged. Police put up yellow crime scene tape and barricaded the scene where Nicole's body had been found. William Stokes, head of the criminal division of the Maine Attorney General's office, told the press he would have more information the next day. An autopsy was being conducted in Augusta at the state crime lab. Taylor Ann Harris said she was Nicole's best friend at Old Town High School. She told the media that Doobie and Cable had been, quote, hanging out for the past six weeks or so. She said, and I quote, 
the fake Facebook page was real. Mm. I had to give that I like that, yeah. She then said she believed Doobie had created the phony profile, but, quote, I don't know why he would need to. She willingly would hang out with him before. I don't know what else to think. Harris also said that Nicole was always happy despite having gone through a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Nicole had lived for a time with Harris and had spent the last her last Friday night at Harris's house. Mm-hmm. Nicole's mother, Christine Wiley, was inconsolable, crying at the press conference that Tuesday. She held a picture of her smiling daughter and talked about what a happy, upbeat girl her daughter had been, mm-hmm. how she loved music and doted on her three younger half-sisters. She also had an older brother and stepbrother. Jason Wiley, Nicole's stepdad, warned that parents should have access to their kids' social media accounts and phones, even if the kids get angry about the invasion of privacy it could save their lives oh don't want your kids mad at you uh, you know our parents generation were never worried about i don't think it's even that i don't think i think a lot of it's just you just don't pay attention to yeah. shit i mean even when we were kids they didn't pay attention yeah, thank god there was no social one media. one thing louis C- louis ck said about being a parent that i totally agree with is the worst thing about it is the boredom Mm-hmm. There are sometimes it is so fucking boring. Like when they're playing something and they want you to play with them and you're yeah. just like, oh my fucking God. So like if they're on something that right. ever not. <laughs> well, see, our parents' generation didn't play game, play with us. No, the they didn't. They didn't play catch. That's why there's so many guys that are messed up. <laughs> Just like the dad cats in the cradle. Catch with our brother. I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know I'm going to be like you. <laughs> Anyways. Okay. Oh, I'm so glad I don't have kids that I know of. <laughs> <laughs> On Tuesday, May 21st, the Maine State Police officially took over the Nicole Cable case as it was now a homicide. As we've mentioned in other episodes of Crime and Stuff, the state police handle all murder investigations with the exception of the cities of Portland and Bangor. And I was surprised about that. I had to look that up again because I'm like, I'm surprised Lewiston doesn't, but they don't. Wednesday, May 22nd was Kyle Doobie's first court appearance. When Superior Court Judge William Anderson ordered everyone seated, Christine Cable stayed on her feet holding a panda bear pillow that belonged to her daughter. Her husband Jason finally got her to sit down and he held her her head to his chest. Doobie did not enter a plea because he had yet to be indicted for the crime of intentional or knowing murder. A court date was not set. He was denied bail. At this time details were not known about what led up to his murder charge. There was an affidavit containing information but Judge Anderson sealed it until the following week when Doobie was expected to be indicted by the grand jury. This was at the request of Doobie's of defense attorney Stephen Smith. He also expressed concern about his client's safety. Hmm. Doobie, remember, was serving time in the Penobscot County Jail for his crimes in connection with the high-speed motorcycle chase the year before. Smith complained to reporters that Doobie had had death threats, but when asked specifically what they were, said they were online threats, nothing in person or by hmm. phone or letter. Which is like, come Join on. the club. No shit. Penobscot County Sheriff Glenn Ross said that Doobie had been in maximum security for his own safety since Nicole's body had been found had also been on suicide watch because he was crying when he came to the jail. Mm -hmm. The sheriff agreed to have Doobie kept away from other inmates for the time being. Many of Nicole's school friends were in the courtroom that day. Not only her friends, but also those who didn't know her or only knew her casually. You know how teenagers are when there's a tragedy. A lot of people wore neon yellow, her favorite color. Mm. One school friend described her as 
a great sweet girl. Another person at the court proceeding was a Bangor High School classmate of Kyle Duby, who was there in support of Nicole's family. She said that Kyle Duby had been a brother figure and best friend to her, but she was disgusted that he may have killed, quote, a beautiful, innocent girl. Mm. The community planned fundraising events for Nicole's family. A screen printer sold t-shirts and sweatshirts in her honor, and a balloon releasing ceremony was planned for Friday night, May 24th at 6.30. Both things had been planned before it was known she was dead as a way to bring awareness to her disappearance. In the wake of her death, the motivation changed to be a memorial for her and to help her family out by raising money. Also, Christine Wiley wanted to set up a fund to help people who lost their children. The Friday after Nicole's body was found, nearly two weeks after her disappearance, about 300 people gathered in Glenburn to release bright yellow balloons in honor and remembrance of Nicole. There was a steady rain that evening, but it didn't keep people away. Jason Wiley, her stepdad, spoke to the crowd, quote, We're seeing a lot of people show up out here tonight, and we want to tell everybody here that we greatly appreciate this very, very much. We can't tell the community how much this means to us to see so much support coming out for Nicole. He was also grateful to the people who searched for his daughter. We thanked as many volunteers as we could reach. The organizers of the event were Pastor Jack Dowling and his wife Becca of the Glumburn Covenant Church. Pastor Dowling said it gives us strength and encouragement to Nicole's family and even on a rainy day like this they came out to show their love and support for those of us left behind. It was also announced that Nicole's funeral would take place the following Monday, May 27th. On Saturday, May 25th, there was a candlelight vigil held at Eastridge Stable in Charleston, Maine. This too had been originally planned when no one knew if Nicole was alive or dead. It was now being used as a fundraiser and a memorial as well. Another spaghetti dinner and vigil were scheduled. Spaghetti dinners are pretty popular. Yes, they are. Second only to bean dinners. Bean dinners, yeah. Sometimes there's some really good food at those things. And they're cheap. They are. Usually $8, it seems to be. $8. The population of the surrounding area is small, even though it's comprised of several towns. When something like this happens, everyone knows someone directly or indirectly connected with a tragedy, and it can hit close to home. The communities were just trying to process it all. Monday, May 27th was Memorial Day. Two weeks had passed since Nicole was first reported missing by her mother, Christine. Today was the day of her funeral. Over 300 people attended the service at Bangor Baptist Church. Some knew her well, others not at all. Mm-hmm. Everyone there was moved by the loss of a young woman and wanted to pay their respects to her family. Everyone. <laughs> Very cynical. Christine Wiley, Nicole's mother, was distraught as the coffin was coming down the aisle to leave the church. She ran to the casket and hugged and kissed it. Christine wore a bright yellow blouse in honor of her daughter's favorite color, along with a black skirt. At the service, she said, Baby girl, I love you so much. I know in my heart you will be with me always. I will miss your laughter and your smile and your sweet kisses on my cheeks. I know that you have not left us and that you never will. Hmm. Jamie Robertson, neighbor and father of Nicole's friend Haley, said, There are many times over the past few weeks when what was happening felt surreal. We kept hoping that we would wake up and it would not be real. Through all the darkness, we have to remember that she was a gift. Please remember the gift that she was. On Wednesday, May 29th, Kyle Doobie was indicted by a Penobscot County grand jury. Gee, what a surprise. What Hmm. if they hadn't indicted him? Oh, that would be funny. Doobie's attorney, Stephen Smith, filed a motion to keep the probable cause affidavit sealed until trial. If you remember, the week before, he had successfully gotten Superior Court Justice William Anderson to seal it until this hearing. But Anderson denied the newest motion, saying the public and the press had a right to know the details of Mm. the case that were contained in the affidavit. And I want to say, as a journalist, too, 
that the best details you can get on a crime are from an affidavit. Mm. And we used to love, I'm sure they still And I was, seeing that word always reminds me of once when I was, you know, when we were kids, mom used to watch the soap operas while she was being a housewife. Mm-hmm. And there was some soap opera where they kept talking about an affidavit. And I was probably like four <laughs> or five. I had no idea what it was, but I always remember that thinking, what is it? Why are they all talking about I can say as an editor, it's one of the most misspelled words in crime stories. Mm, that's interesting. If you're reading online if you're reading a crime story and the newspaper has attached an affidavit to read read it because yeah those uh, because police reports and affidavits and stuff have a lot of information and that's one of the great things that the internet has added to journalism and because stories have to be a certain length you know they have to have a certain narrative flow sometimes a lot of the stuff isn't in them and also is an editor's choice or reporter's choice so if they're available online read them yourself because you may find out a lot of stuff that isn't in the story that is very interesting. Yeah, especially if you're interested in more details. Smith again expressed concern for his client's safety and repeated that he had received numerous threats on his Facebook page, which had since been taken down. Please, come on. Like, what? I think they all do because people... Everybody gets death threats. The opposite of people who want to go to the vigils and be on the search team and stuff are the people who want to get online and make death threats and say horrible things. And also things. something that might not be serious death threats, like saying, well, you deserve to to, you know, have somebody kill you or something. My guess is I don't want to demean death. I <laughs> death demean threats. death threats. I don't want to trivialize, you know, the seriousness of death threats. Yeah. But I also think, especially now in our digital age, it's very easy for assholes to threaten to kill people and all sorts of other things. Oh, and I'm not like saying threaten to rape them all the time. That women get threatened. Yes, yeah. and, and and that's what I'm saying. It's not that people aren't necessarily in danger, but I don't think some asshole who anonymously goes on, they're just trying to be. The guy was denied bail. Right. So like, are these people gonna like sneak into? to the jail and kill yes. him. Immediately after the judge's ruling, the affidavit went public. And what happened the night Nicole disappeared, kind of, was known. The probable cause affidavit was written by Maine State Police Detective Thomas Pickering. It included information from Kyle's younger brother, Dustin. According to Dustin, this is what happened. Kyle had intended to kidnap and hide Nicole somewhere disguised as someone else. Then he, as Kyle, would rescue her in order to be the hero. According to Dustin's account, Kyle had Nicole meet him down the road from her house where he jumped out of the woods wearing a ski mask. He had brought duct tape with him and he bound her with the duct tape and put her in the back of his father's pickup truck. But when he stopped the truck, he found she had died. He dumped her body in the woods near Dysart's gas station in Old Town. Not the Dysart's truck stop that we love to eat at. He covered her body with stick. Kyle Dewey's girlfriend, Sarah Mersinger, told police a similar story, but added that Kyle threw Nicole's clothes out the window on the way back from dumping her. On May 15th, the Tuesday after Nicole was reported missing, Kyle Kyle Doobie was interviewed by police. He told them that he did have a relationship with Nicole, but he had been working the night of May 12th. He had texted with her that day, though. Kyle was employed by a company that supplied aid to adults with developmental disabilities and mental disabilities and would spend the night at the home with the client. Oh, just like next door to mom and dad's house. Yeah, it's a group home. I believe Mm -hmm. it doesn't specify that, but from the other things that'll come up. I dated someone who did that once. To, for work. Cool story, bro. Yeah. Kyle Doobie had created a Facebook page using the name Brian Butterfield. As I said before, I have an issue that the reporting keeps calling it a fake Facebook page because it's a real page. Yes, and I want to... It's a bogus profile, but the page isn't fake. And I want to say, too, that as an editor... I had a problem with that, too. And when we used stories from the other newspaper, not the Bangor Daily News, the Press Herald that was covering them, 
I would try if I was working to edit, had to change it. And he made this page using Brian Butterfield's information, but not his picture. And he started talking to Nicole. One of Nicole's friends had told police she'd gotten a text from Nicole that night saying she was going to meet, quote, Butterfield. Mm. The affidavit mentions the real Brian Butterfield, but doesn't say how he knew Doobie. It does say that he suspected Doobie of creating the account and that he knew Doobie wanted to have sex with Nicole, but she wasn't interested. The police investigating Nicole's online activity saw that she had a lot of contact with the person using the Brian Butterfield Facebook profile. So can I, so just so I understand it. So there was a real Brian Butterfield. Yes. And he knew Nicole. Vaguely. Vaguely. He knew of her. Okay. I'm okay, getting to yeah, that. Okay, yeah, I just want to I'm sure. kind of going along with the way the story unfolds. The phony Brian kept pestering Nicole to meet him in person. Red flag. According to Facebook communication, she finally agreed to meet him the night of May 12th at the end of her road so he could give her some pot. Keep in mind that this is a very rural area. She lived on a dirt road mm-hmm. in the middle of the woods, basically. Mm-hmm. The computer investigators linked the Butterfield Facebook account to an IP address at Doobie's family's home in Orono, where he lived with his parents. And his four-year-old daughter. From a previous... Doobies? As they say, yes. How old was he again? He was 20. Okay. 19 or 20. Mm-hmm. I don't know. He obviously a teen father. Mm-hmm. A blue hat with a hole cut in it and a black sock were found near Nicole's house in Glenburn. Both had Doobie's DNA on them. A shoe was also found, though the affidavit doesn't say if it had DNA on it. A week later, on June 6th, a search warrant affidavit was released. This affidavit, filed by Maine State Police Detective Christopher Tupper, had details about Nicole's texts and online communications in the time before her disappearance and death. These were messages and texts sent and received with her friends, including Kyle Doobie. On the morning of May 12th, 8.48 a.m., Nicole sent a text to her boyfriend, not Doobie. This is the only time in the stories I've read about her boyfriend, her real boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't come up in the trial. He doesn't. They don't mention him. They don't say if they questioned him or anything. It's really weird. weird. Maybe because he's underage. Maybe. I mean, I I know he probably was, and they probably cleared him of being a suspect, but it's weird that they don't even, like, talk about him. Yeah, maybe if he was 16 or under. Yeah, but they they would mention him without mentioning his name. Like Sarah Mersinger, they didn't mention her name until later. Right, you would think they would, yes. But that just, it was just weird to me. Like, I didn't know she had a boyfriend until I read this. Yeah, that would bother me. But she sent a text to her boyfriend, and I had read all these Articles when they came out, but I forgot. Who was not Doobie. Saying she had hung out with Kyle the night before and was upset. And her boyfriend asked why. She answered, Kyle was trying to kiss and grope me. I kept trying to push him off me and he wouldn't stop. Wouldn't stop. And he ended up leaving a bite mark on me. So as soon as he got off me, I had him bring me home. The boyfriend texts back, I'm gonna kill him. (laughs) Sorry. I'll just, I'm gonna kill him. No one, the number one, disrespects you. Anything else happens. No question mark. About the same time he was writing that, she sent Doobie a text mentioning the bite mark, and he texted back, sorry. And it's fine, she answered. It's like, well, Nicole. But, you know. I know. These that's girls, what I know, women this, do. I know, I know. Young ones and I know, older ones. I know. The police asked Doobie about the bite mark. He said he bit Nicole while kissing her, and she bit him back. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. This newer affidavit cleared up how Kyle Doobie knew Brian Butterfield. Butterfield had been questioned by the police. He had an alibi, and he said he only knew Nicole vaguely. He knew about the Facebook profile with his name, which I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. 
Though the photo on it was not him. He suspected Kyle Doobie of creating it. He knew Doobie because he had once dated Doobie's current girlfriend. Mm. Doobie was linked to the Facebook page not only by his IP address, but because he updated the page using his phone. Mm. The investigators figured that out pretty easily because they are not stupid. That same phone was used to text with Nicole shortly before she left her home the evening of May 12th. Other online messages and texts to and from Nicole revealed that she planned to meet Brian Butterfield at the end of her road to hang out, smoke pot, and get a free bag of pot. When Nicole was texting with her boyfriend earlier on Mother's Day, she told him that she had hung out with Kyle Doobie the night before. They were driving around searching for a party that was being thrown by Butterfield. The night she died, she texted Kyle Doobie telling him she was going to meet Brian Butterfield. Mm. She writes, so, with three O's. Mm. It reminds me of... Yes. Um, so, I'm hanging out with Brian soon, and he just left from Corinth, which is about 20 miles away. He's smoking me up and giving me a free 20 bag. I'm pumped. Mm-hmm. This was at 9 p.m. Doobie texted back, lucky bitch, with a semicolon and a parenthesis thing. So, like a winking smiley Winky face. smile. Nicole. And people say looks don't get you what you want. I didn't even have to flirt with Brian and Doobie. He's probably ugly and just want the cute girls to be around him. At 9.09, Nicole wrote, Ha ha, probably, but I swear if he tried anything, I'd stab him. That makes me seem crazy or something. Too bad she didn't really have a knife on her. Doobie responded, Just remember to call me or anything if you need me. And at 9.15, she answered, All right, I will. Is it weird to be a little scared? 918, Doobie texted. No, I wouldn't be. Mm. At 920, Nicole said, all right. And then 23 minutes later, Kyle Doobie texted Nicole, just don't get too stone. Probably not stone. But I think that was after whatever happened. Yes. According to Doobie's cell phone records, he was in the area of Bangor and Glumburn between 9.50 and 11 p.m. At about 11 p.m., Doobie showed up at his girlfriend's house with scratches on his face. He told her he got them from a client, someone he took care of at his job, assisting people with disabilities. As police reported in the probable cause affidavit, a hat, sock, and shoe were found near Nicole's house. The newest information expanded on that. The DNA on the sock matched both Doobie and Nicole. The shoe was hers, and they found another shoe across the street. From this, they deduced that she had tried to run away from her attacker. It's funny how quickly they can get DNA back now. I know. You Remember, you had to wait weeks, weeks or, or months yeah. sometimes. On May 17th, a jogger running on Route 221... Those joggers find everything. They're always finding. Which is the road Nicole's road comes into. So this would be where she would have gone to meet this Brian person. This This jogger reported some suspicious items to police. They found Nicole's pink sweatshirt dirty on the back but clean on the front. It had been cut or ripped open in the front. They also found some black rope. Kyle Doobie was in jail with no bail set and no trial date set. The police and state seemed to have the evidence they needed to prosecute him. Now all they needed was the trial date. Mm. In the meantime, Kyle Doobie was in the Penobscot County Jail in Bangor. He later would be moved to the main state prison in Warren. In August of 2014, over a year after the murder of Nicole Cable and the arrest and indictment of Kyle Doobie, the trial date was announced for February 23, 2015 at the Penobscot Judicial Center in Bangor. The trial was expected to last two weeks. Doobie's lawyers, Stephen Smith and Wendy Hatch, filed four motions, one to change venue, one seeking expert witness reports, and two 
to suppress evidence. As a former legal secretary, a motion to suppress is something we mm. always did. I think you got to try any right. way you can. Doobie's attorneys argued that a change of venue was necessary because of all the attention this case got on social media and in the surrounding areas with posters and news coverage, and the fact that Nicole's parents were on Dr. Phil in the fall of 2013, mm. which I watched. It was short. It was- I understand how... Everything must have been heightened in the Bangor area, but Maine's a small enough state. That's exactly what I said. Everyone heard of it. The Bangor Daily News and Portland Press Herald are the two biggest newspapers, and they cover the entire state. I know. And also, Dr. Phil is a national show. Right. I mean, it's like, come on. What would I don't know what the, he thought a change of venue would do. Yeah. Or maybe he's just trying to delay things. Or maybe there were fewer people who would be connected or know the family. That's true. I mean, even though Bangor is a big city for Maine, everybody still knows each oh, other. Oh, yeah. Under Maine state law, both sides of a case, defense and prosecutor, can agree to move a trial to any other county in the state. If they agree. But how often do they agree? Never. Never. If the judge approves a change of venue motion but the state opposes it the trial can still be moved to an adjacent county in doobie's case the prosecution did not want to move it and why so the trial could have been held in one of the adjoining counties but the county courthouses in the surrounding counties had much smaller courtrooms than the one in bangor there's a question for matt and it was a trial that had a lot of media and public interest what how often does a prosecutor want to oh yeah i know i know that is a good question a crowd was expected also the courthouse in bangor had the best security system so the two motions to suppress asked that doobie's statements to fellow inmates at the jail and to police be suppressed because doobie was not allowed to leave in interviews so his statements were involuntary they also said he wasn't aware of his right also the defense wanted the stuff from his cell phone suppressed because it was obtained without a warrant when they say he wasn't aware of his rights do they mean we'll he was talk ne- about that later okay. because they do go at the hearing they go into detail okay. i'm just kind right. of the prosecution did not oppose the motion for expert witnesses in december of 2014 a new judge took over the case superior court justice ann murray mm. not the singer <laughs> i was gonna took over from Superior Court Justice William Alexander. On Thursday, January 29th of 2015, Kyle Doobie and everyone else was in court to argue the motions to suppress. So then we'll go into detail Mm -hmm. about those. Corrections Officer Robert Soucy told the court that Doobie was crying when he came to serve his time for the motorcycle accident. Soucy asked him why he was crying. How long would he be in jail? Soucy testified, he told me 30 days. I told him that was nothing. He said, it's what I've done that they don't know I've done that I'm worried about. Uh, yeah, you don't say stuff like that. Detective Thomas Pickering testified that Doobie was given his Miranda right, and those are, if you don't know, you have the right to remain silent and you have a right to an attorney. You should know that. And a couple other things. If you watch crime shows. Right. These were at the interviews before he had turned himself in for his motorcycle when they they interviewed him on the 15th and the 16th. Detective Pickering and Detective Jay Pelletier picked up Doobie at work in Bangor on May 15th to bring him to the Maine State Police Office, also in Bangor, on May 15th, and did not give him a Miranda warning during that drive, which is probably less than 15 minutes if it's, you know, from Bangor to Bangor. But they did give him one once they got there. Mm Mm-hmm to interview him they also picked him up and also he hadn't been charged yet right oh that's right so you don't have to give someone a miranda warning if you haven't charged them and people should just know 
Yeah, you we don't ta- have to talk I, I to mentioned that later. Right. They also picked him up at his home in Orono and drove him to an interview at the Orono police station the next day. And again, probably less than 10 minutes in the car with no Miranda warning, but they did give him a warning after. The reason they drove him is because he told them he had lost his driver's license. And that's when I was like, wait, why didn't they mention that? But I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure that that's why the earlier article said he used the the truck to go go to him from work because mm-hmm. a lot of times if people don't know what our laws are in the state a lot of times you can get a concession from like if you get if you have a motor vehicle violation and you lose your license they'll still allow you to get to him from work right. with a truck and I'm but sure, if you get caught and you're not on your way to work you right. get in big trouble I was gonna say, i'm sure he drove other times too well but, like when they were driving around looking for the party right the night before <laughs> doobie did not confess to the killing in either police interview nor did he confess in the car and when i'm going through all this this is what came out in this hearing. So right. as the I said, I'm kind of, hearing. yeah, I'm kind of going through the easiest way to in do linear. this story was in the way it was reported because right. otherwise yes. it would have been too much work. And I'm corrections officer. Susie didn't read Doobie his Miranda rights. He said he never does when booking someone into the jail, but you know, anyone in trouble needs to realize you don't need someone to tell you your rights in order to have them be your rights. I realize some people are unaware of their rights, but it's not like the reading of the Miranda rights automatically makes them so. You need to understand that you always have the right to keep your fucking mouth shut. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, what you say could hurt you. So you need to get some common sense. Yeah, people have to understand that you don't have to talk to the police. Yes, and they don't need to tell you what... They're telling you what your rights are just to make sure you know, but that doesn't mean that if they don't tell you, you you have to talk. You can just keep your mouth shut. And the law is when they arrest you, they tell you. So if they're hauling you down to the station to talk to you and they they haven't formally arrested you, they don't have to. They could, just to let you know, but they don't want to. They could, but... They want you to say shit. I know, they do. You know, I'm sure if they had their choice, they wouldn't want to even have to give people their Miranda rights. I know. And the whole reason they do is because the case, the Miranda guy, is because so few people are aware of what their rights are. Some of it's to protect people, but also it's to keep cases from getting thrown out by people saying, well, I didn't know what my rights were. So Judge Ann Murray did not make a ruling on the motions at that time. She did say... Take your t- <laughs> I was gonna take your tiny wings and fly <laughs> away. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can't help it every time I read that. Or I was going to say, you needed me. Or I can't believe it's true. I can't believe it's you. I like her version of Danny's song. Oh, yeah. Even though she hasn't, she hasn't done anything lately, has no. she? Is she still well, she's probably, I don't know. She's Canadian. Though. What's that good to do? Nothing. Jury selection had been set to start February 11th, which is Hannah's birthday. Yeah. In anticipation of the trial starting February 23rd. In the meantime, the prosecution had filed... And motion to disallow alternative suspect theories by defense. And so on February 6th, the defense filed an objection to that motion. Judge Murray was not expected to rule on that motion until after jury selection. She also, at this time, denied the motions to suppress by the defense. According to the defense, Doobie's girlfriend at the time, Sarah Mersinger, who they didn't name at the time because she had not been charged and she was a minor, but her name came out during the trial, so I'm going to use it. She was the alternate suspect in the murder. She was also the ex-girlfriend of Brian Butterfield. The defense's objection quoted texts between Kyle and Sarah between the day Nicole was reported missing, May 14th, and the day her body was found, May 20th. On May 14th, Mersinger texted, Why do you care? 
care if she's missing. It was because of her own stupidity. It's her fault she put herself in a position to be kidnapped. You don't know the whole story. She was messaging that Brian Butterfield and asking him for cigarettes and gave him her address even though the pick on the FB was of somebody with a surfboard and blonde hair and then in all caps. It's her fault for being stupid so I'm LOLing. <laughs> Sarah also texted, yes. Little, I Little victim blaming there. I know. Well, she didn't, she really didn't like her. She also texted, yes, I hate her extremely, but is he worth kidnapping? LOL, no. I don't know what happened to her, and I don't care. In the defense's objections, Stephen Smith argued that there was, quote, ample evidence to suggest Mersinger was a viable suspect. She freely admitted she hated Nicole Cable. She had access to Doobie's phone, his truck, his belongings. She told police she was upset with Doobie for cheating on her with Nicole. She was also told by police not to keep seeing Doobie, and she did. Hmm. She practically lived at his house. So why was she texting him? Like, Yeah, well, because people text each other when they're in the same <laughs> room with them. During the jury selection process, the media was not happy about the way Judge Murray set things up. They used the largest courtroom in the building, and then the judge, attorneys, and potential jurors sat at a table about 20 feet away from the reporters. The principals spoke so softly that even the court reporter who was right there with them had to ask them to repeat things. The Bangor Daily News cited a 2010 Supreme Court ruling that said the jury selection must be open to the public. Apparently the situation stuck in the craw of the reporters because several paragraphs in this article were devoted to <laughs> the fact that they couldn't hear what people were saying during jury selection. They were yeah. pissed. The week before it was reported that Kyle Doobie had been offered a plea deal but declined it. What an idiot. The, the details were not discussed, but it was later speculated that it was probably for 45 years prison. On February 20th, Judge Murray granted the prosecution's motion to disallow alternative suspects. The judge said that the defendant's objection was only speculation and conjecture without evidence. So a big fat nope to that. During this hearing, it also came out that Kyle Doobie had written a 17-page statement to a fellow inmate at the Maine State Prison. Written? Yes, you'll oh, hear. Jesus. And though the defense wanted that suppressed, the judge allowed it. Why did he write the statement? Mm. Well, apparently the prison has some program in which some inmates and some corrections officers are, quote, counsel substitutes who can help someone prepare for trial. They supposedly help them prepare their defense. Now, forgive my cynicism, but this doesn't seem like something that could possibly ever work out well for the defendant, especially if the information isn't confidential. Do you ha so you don't have attorney-client privilege? I'm Getting to that. Okay, I'm sorry. You always anticipate I'm sorry. what I'm going to say. I'm a journalist. And Kyle Doobie's defense team was arguing that this should be confidential because of attorney-client privilege. After all, it is called the Substitute Counsel Program, but Judge Ann Murray said that she wasn't satisfied that the statement was covered by that privilege. Hey, well, any prisoners listening, think twice before accepting help. Hey, to me, then it sounds like the whole thing is a setup. No shit. To get dumb prisoners to unwittingly no shit. confess to shit. I agree. To make it easier to prosecute. We'll have them. to ask Matt about this. Yeah. We gotta get that guy back here. She did allow some of the interviews with police to be suppressed, though. The jury was nine men and seven women, which included four alternates. And I found out later the alternates were two of each. Two men, two women. Kyle Doobie's trial began Monday, February 23rd. Nicole's mother, Christine Wiley, testified that when her daughter did not answer her phone or return text messages, I was scared. I felt something was wrong. 
She said she had met Kyle Doobie at least once in the month or so before her daughter's death. He'd come to her house with Nicole and Nicole's friend and neighbor, Haley Robertson. Nicole was not allowed to date anyone over 17, so Wiley asked Doobie about his relationship with her daughter. At the time, he was 19. He told her they were just friends. On the evening of Mother's Day, at 8.43, according to Christine, Nicole asked permission to walk down the road to meet Haley's cousin for some smokes. Christine gave permission and cried as she recounted that that was the last conversation she had had with her daughter. Kyle Doobie's mother also testified. She had met Nicole a couple weeks prior to her death when Kyle brought the girl to their house. Kyle Doobie's mother's name was Tammy. Kyle's girlfriend, Sarah Mersinger, was not there at the time. Mm. But Sarah did spend most evenings at the Doobie house and had access to Tammy's computer, as did everyone else in the home. Police had seized the computer. Kyle's mother also said that Sarah used his cell phone and wore his clothes. Haley Robertson testified that she and her best friend Nicole liked to party, drink, and smoke pot together. Mm. The two girls had started smoking pot after Kyle Doobie took them to an outdoor party in Dixmont, where they first smoked pot. Mm. And Dixmont's about 20 miles to the west. <laughs> it's like everything. Everything's in a, like a 30-mile yeah. radius. She had received a text. Haley had received a text from Nicole between 9 and 10 p.m. the night she disappeared saying that Nicole was going to meet Brian Butterfield. Haley didn't read it immediately because she was sleeping. She said the next day after it was found that Nicole had not come home, she tried to connect with Butterfield on his Facebook page but found the page had been deleted. Mm. Brian Butterfield himself testified. He told the court that several weeks prior to Nicole's death, he had reported to Bangor police that someone was posing as him online to talk to underage girls. He didn't know police suspected Doobie of this until after he was charged. And I wonder if the police actually even did yeah. anything about it. They might have been, though. Who knows? Butterfield said he'd had a messy breakup with Sarah Mersinger and thought about seeking an order of protection from her after their parting, though he didn't end up doing it. He had heard through the grapevine that Kyle Doobie wanted to, quote, kick his butt. Two neighbors of Nicole's family were walking their dogs between 9 and 10 and testified that they heard a woman scream. Neither reported it to the police at the time. A former co-worker of Kyle Doobie's testified. Doobie worked for the Getchell Agency and cared for developmentally disabled and mentally ill adults, helping them with every task, etc. This co-worker, Clifford Redman, said the Saturday night before Mother's Day, he and Doobie were at the home caring for a mentally ill client and she became violent with them he said she attacked us and clawed kyle's face near his eye that day we filled out an incident report when i saw him monday he had a couple by his nose that he hadn't had before mm. and those scratches looked fresh and new he didn't say that but i'm saying they yes. looked fresh the medical examiner had found Kyle Doobie's DNA under Nicole Cable's fingernails. Oh, at least she got that. Another co-worker, Jack Merritt, said that he came to work at 8.45 p.m. on the evening of May 12th. Doobie left about 10 minutes later and didn't return till 6 a.m., telling Merritt if anyone asked to say he was there all night. Mm. They're supposed to be there all night. Yes. But another co-worker, and, okay, I'm going to try to pronounce his name, Isaacuku Anyjakwi. That sounds right to me. Said that Doobie never showed up to replace him on the morning of May 13th. He remembered because his brother was visiting for his college graduation. And he said, I had to wake Clifford up, and Clifford was that other co-worker, mm -hmm. because Kyle was not there, and I had to leave to have breakfast with my brother and get him to the airport. Anya Jacqui was also asked to look at a document to see if he recognized Doobie's handwriting. This was the document that Kyle Doobie had written while in jail. The inmate he wrote it to would not testify at a pretrial hearing, citing his Fifth Amendment 
right against self-incrimination. Brent Bollier of the Bangor Police Department testified about how we traced the page of the bogus Butterfield to Doobie, as well as an AOL email address. Both were connected to Doobie's cell phone. AOL, come on. I know. And the IP address to his father. I know. I always think when when someone has an AOL, it's an old account. I know. The jury was shown Facebook chats between Nicole and Brian Butterfield in which she gave him her address and they planned to meet and smoke pot. These interactions took place on May 12th and ended at 9.18 p.m. The Butterfield account was deactivated on May 13th, 2013. Sarah Mersinger took the stand on day six. This was a big one. Yeah. She testified that on May 16th, 2013, when her then-boyfriend, Kyle Doobie, came home from his second interview with police, he was crying. She knew from her own interview with the police that they probably suspected him of killing Nicole because of the questions I answered, and she's not dumb. She said, I asked him what he had done. He told me he killed Nicole. He told me he strangled her at the end of her road. He said that he had a mask on when he strangled her. He said he put duct tape on her mouth, her eyes, and on her hands and feet. According to Mersinger's testimony, Kyle put Nicole in the truck and drove to Gilman Falls Road in Old Town. He wasn't sure if she was dead or alive. Mersinger's testimony continued. He said he carried her on his back into the woods, then checked her pulse and there was none. He said he took her clothes off so dogs couldn't smell her. He said he covered her (laughs) up with sticks and leaves so they couldn't see her from the sky. Because the dogs wouldn't smell the decomposing Apparently, he's not the brightest bulb. Sarah said she didn't report what Kyle told her until May 20th because Tammy Doobie, Kyle's mother, advised her not to. During her interview with the police in the days after Nicole disappeared, she told them that she didn't care what happened to Nicole, that she herself was a violent person who held grudges, and that if she found out Kyle had been having sex with Nicole again, she would, quote, kill him in his sleep. At trial, she said she regretted saying those things every day. Sarah Merchinger and Kyle Doobie had met on Facebook and began dating in November of 2012. Her mother did not approve of Doobie. In April of 2013, Sarah found out that Doobie and Nicole had had sex. And I don't know if they actually did have sex. Or if Kyle just or if said. She, or she, someone told her that. I right. don't know. And shortly before Nicole's death, Sarah found out that Nicole and Kyle had been messaging and texting each other. And she was not happy about that. She denied having created the Butterfield Facebook page, said she didn't know Doobie's username or password, and did not hurt Nicole. Mersinger's mother, Catherine Najala, also took the stand. As her daughter testified, Najala said she didn't approve of Doobie. Her daughter, Sarah, spent most of her time at the Doobie home where Kyle lived with his parents and his four-year-old daughter. Sarah did spend Mother's Day with her mom at Catherine Najala's house. Kyle was supposed to pick Sarah up between 9 and 10 that evening, but instead showed up at 11. Sarah's testimony revealed that when he picked her up late, his clothes smelled like manure and vomit. Maine State Prison inmate Scott Ford apparently waived his Fifth Amendment rights and ended up testifying at the trial, because he wouldn't at the pretrial, about the document Doobie penned and the contents of the 17-page confession were shared with the jury. And you have to look, I will post it on our page. Kyle drew this diagram of Nicole's road with little figures of him and her, and he drew little trees and a ski mask on the ground. I thought it was Mm. kind of interesting. Anyway, he wrote, it says it's a 17-page document, but it's something that he wrote in pages over time. It wasn't like he sat down and wrote the whole thing, because he wrote several versions of the story. I made a Facebook account to prank my friend Nicole. 
And prank has a C in it that shouldn't be in there. Mm. I had her meet me at the end of her driveway, and then I jumped and scared the expletive out of her. I'm not bleeping it. It was bleeped in the thing. Okay. Believe me, I wouldn't bleep. She passed out, and then I freaked. I put duct tape on her Mm. to keep her from running off. I put her in the truck and went for a drive, thinking she would wake up. After 15 to 20 minutes, she didn't get up. I checked her, and she was dead. I did CPR, but didn't work. I panicked. I was already coming to jail, so I didn't want to get charged for murder. So I put her body in the woods and took her clothes off and scraped her fingernails from my DNA, covered her up, and then left. I threw her clothes out in the wood, laid a ladder down the road, but cops found them. Later in the document, he has written a different version. I jump out wearing a ski mask. I grabbed her around the chest and stomach, so I thought, and then I realized I had her in a chokehold with my right arm over her neck area. She passed out, and I freaked. He wrote that she ripped off his ski mask and scratched his face with both hands. He wrote again that he taped her with duct tape and put her in the truck. So she was breathing and still passed out. Then she started gasping for air. I quickly got out and cut the tape and sat her up. She went still and I started doing CPR and she didn't start breathing. The truth is I never meant for her to die. She passed out after jumping her from behind and then died in the truck. I didn't hit her or drown her or choke her or shoot her. She just stopped breathing. I should have called 911 and got help, but was so scared. That's why I'm here, because I was expletive scared and didn't call for help. A palm print on the confession pages matched Kyle's, according to the fingerprint analysis from the Maine State Crime Lab. Scott Ford testified that he... Now, this is where I'm confused, but we'll talk about this in a minute. Let me just say this. Scott Ford testified that he and Kyle communicated by passing papers back and forth on the sly between their cells. And when I read this, I was confused because I thought he was a substitute counsel. So I don't understand. Yeah. But anyway, Doobie asked Ford to flush the papers after he read them, but Ford kept them and instead gave them to investigators. So I was wondering, maybe he was his counsel, but maybe part of that isn't to write things down. Maybe he was just... Or maybe it was an informal agreement between the two of them not understanding the substitute counsel program. Yeah, I don't know. Under cross-examination, Ford said he did not get a shortened sentence for handing over the documents. And at 45, he had spent most of his adult life in prison. Mm. I did not find out why he was incarcerated. I guess I could have, but... It's not relevant. Kyle's younger brother, Dustin, testified. He said he never told police that Kyle confessed directly to him. He said that Sarah Mersinger had told him that Kyle confessed to her. A co-worker of Dustin's had testified that Dustin told him that Kyle confessed to him, but Dustin said he didn't remember that conversation. Earlier in the trial, Maine State Police Detective Jay Pelletier had testified that Dustin said he heard, quote, straight from Kyle, end quote, the details of how he killed Nicole and where her body was. The only witness called by the defense was Tammy Doobie, Kyle's mother. She talked about how her son was an athlete in high school and how he was the primary caregiver to his daughter. And I think probably I think Tammy, Tammy is was. the primary yeah. caregiver. Yeah. Before resting, the defense read a quote from something Sarah Mersinger said, had texted. The expletive got what she deserved. It only took the jury, five women and seven men, 45 minutes to find Kyle Doobie guilty of the kidnapping and murder of 15-year-old Nicole Cable. When the verdict was announced, Nicole's father, David Cable of Alton, Maine, clapped twice until a judicial marshal took his hand to shake it in congratulations and probably stopped him from clapping. Mm -hmm. Other members of her family hugged and cried. Doobie's family, including his mother Tammy and brother Dustin, also cried and wept. Kyle Doobie showed no reaction. 
Nicole's mother, Christine Wiley, did not comment right away, but later said, he took someone wonderful and threw her away, and that's not okay. He should feel bad about it. Doobie's lawyer, Stephen Smith, said that, quote, the Cables lost a daughter and the Doobies have lost a son. No shit. Yeah. I mean, that's always the way it happens when someone commits a fucking crime yeah. and they go to prison or f- mm-hmm. their family loses them. I don't have any sympathy mm-hmm. for him, for no. his family, maybe, although Smith also claimed in closing that Kyle had no motive to kill Nicole as they were friends and lovers. Huh. Oh, yes, because that never Smith happened. Smith doesn't sound like he fully understands. He said that Sarah Mersinger did have a motive. He said, Kyle had no motive, very little opportunity, and there's a perfectly viable suspect who had all those things. There was no reason none zero for kyle to kill nicole that's reasonable doubt and i beg to differ motive or lack of it is not evidence there was yes. plenty of physical evidence that he did it right and they don't even have to present they don't the prosecution because it's and, not evidence right during the trial assistant attorney general leanne zenia told the jury that doobie may not have confessed to police but his written statement to inmate scott ford revealed details only the killer would have known like that nicole's fingernails had been scraped and where things were located in the picture he drew because they could tell someone had tried to clean out her under for her fingernails doobie later claimed he was trying to protect sarah when he wrote the notes to scott ford but then he said quote i'll never try to protect put this on Sarah. I don't care if she's with someone else or not. <laughs> it's my problem, not hers. You got that right, buddy. Yeah. May 18th, 2015 was his sentencing hearing. Prior to sentencing outside the courthouse, Christine Wiley said, quote, I need him to tell me and own up to what he did. I need to know what her last words were. Was she screaming for me? Was she screaming for her dad? I need to know what happened. It was I'm probably her mother. get off of me, you I fucking know. asshole. I deserve to know what happened to her. At the hearing, Nicole's family asked the judge to show no mercy. Doobie's mother, Tammy, told the judge that her son was a caring, generous person and to please take his age into account. Caring and generous right up to the point where... Doobie was sentenced to 60 years in prison for the charge of murder and a concurrent term of 30 years for kidnapping. Judge Murray called it an unprovoked, senseless killing. He was sentenced to pay $12,000 in restitution to Nicole's family for funeral expenses. Which he... (laughs) Yeah, good luck. He is serving a sentence at an undeclosed prison in New Hampshire. He's a, boor- <laughs> he's a boarder from the main state prison, but the reasons he's there instead of here are confidential by Maine law. In March 2016, he appealed for a new trial, saying that Judge Ann Murray aired when she kept singing during court. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Judge Ann Murray aired when she allowed the former co-worker to testify about Doobie's handwriting, and that in closing arguments, the prosecutor kept telling the jury to, quote, use common sense. The repetition of the phrase common sense, according to the appeal, may have caused jurors to substitute that for reasonable doubt. A month later... The main Supreme Judicial Court unanimously upheld Doobie's conviction, and he's still in prison. Did they, and you may have said this, and I may have just missed it, did they ever say what the cause of death was? It was, oh, I thought I said that. You may have. It was I, from asphyxiation. Okay. Wondering the I, claims that I, he strangled her and then the... She was asphyxiated. I'm assuming she was not raped because they didn't say there was yeah. any evidence of that. Yeah, they would have because that would have been Although there may have been evidence she had had sex and they couldn't prove that. Right. Because she had been with him the night before and we don't know if they, she what had happened. sex Although with him or not. Although it sounds like she was like before when he tried to... Yeah, it sounds like she... But she could have told her... Since there's so many things you don't know. Maybe she told her boyfriend that just in case he heard something and then... That could be... And saw the bite mark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't know. I mean... There's so many things that we're going by what people but are texting. just the evidence, like the DNA, his DNA on her clothes and he stuff. Obviously Sarah's DNA wasn't on her clothes. Well, the funny thing is, okay, so I, I was like, after I wrote this, I said, I'm going to watch this 
web of lies or some investigation discovery or whatever that id stands for it was on youtube so it was in this little picture inside this other picture oh, yeah. and everyone's voices sounded like they were breathing helium uh-huh. but it was stupid because the, the good thing about it was her parents were on it which wasn't her her mother and stepfather but the, not for much but they interviewed them and some of her friends i liked that part of it and they did talk about how they met they had texts and stuff from before her disappearance between her and Doobie and her friends. So they had some background information that I didn't have, although I didn't know how much to trust. Mm. The thing that was stupid was that they kept making it seem like Sarah Mersinger was, first of all, that she went to her school, which I don't believe she did. I think she went to Bangor High School. They made it seem like she was the one that did the crime up until like the last five minutes like they kept showing her so like implying that it was some mystery yeah and he and there was a twist that he had done it and they did show some exterior shots of the area but then when they were doing the dramatizations because of course that's what they had Uh like the mother would pick her up at school and drive her home when the mother's driving her home it looks like they're driving through this like suburban area and i'm like no "No, it's woods i mean honest to god you know it's not like there's anything but i also wonder too how much it was him not only him wanting her or whatever, but also him wanting to get Brian Butterfield in trouble because yes. Brian had dated Sarah. Yes. And it sounds like it was all those stupid, not even triangles, but quadrangles. And I, maybe he did want to play the hero. Maybe he did have some kind of plan and that was how he was going to win Nicole. But I don't think he thought it out very well. No. And she was so t- she was a tiny person, so who knows? I Yeah, I think his... I, I don't think he did think it out well. I mean, he may not have even known what he intended, but I think his intention was to make Brian Butterfield look bad as much as his intention was to win yeah. Nicole. So the night before, when they go to look for this party, obviously Brian Butterfield was the one that told her about the party, the fake Brian Butterfield. Right. And so then Kyle and she are looking, and it supposedly was on Pusha Lake, according to that show and brian texted her invited her to this party and he was supposed to pick her up i guess and told her he was lost and so did he have a separate and you may have said this too and there was just a lot of information did he have like a separate number they don't mention that but it makes me wonder if they i mean if he texted her from his own number and said he was brian she would she would know so they didn't say a burner phone or maybe he had another phone it's not that hard to get one he said he was lost which she you think she would have thought what an idiot because gps or whatever well maybe they didn't have any gps that in could. 2013 i didn't have gps till a year ago yeah. but i used to look stuff up on them anyways it doesn't matter but he told and her 2013 he could, they may not have even had smartphones they may have had flip phones or no that could be you know I don't know. But he said he couldn't find her house and he had to get to the party or whatever. So he told her she could meet him there. And then she called. She had been angry at Kyle Doobie because he didn't tell her he had a girlfriend. Mm. That's according to the show. I think she probably knew he had a girlfriend. I mean, it's a small... It sounds like the girlfriend was pretty made herself known type Yes, person. and she was also... And she hated... She was also a, a self-admitted violent person. Yes. The articles I read about the trial, she had matured quite a bit. It was only a year and a half, or it was two years later. Well, maybe it shook her up a, a little, half. too. 
Oh, I seem to remember when I first started reading about it, the articles giving the impression, and maybe this was the Press Herald, not the Bangor Daily News, that Nicole didn't know Kyle Doobie that well. No, she didn't. Yeah. They met on Facebook. Apparently, that's what, I know we sound old, but I don't get it, but people, like, you don't know somebody, you just see that they're a friend of a friend or whatever, and then you start talking to them. Right. And well, I, and all, well, I have... I mean, I friend people that I don't know, but I don't... I, I don't send messages to them. No. Well, I get frequently, and I don't know why it is I get this, but friend requests that are obviously fake. Yes. And they're all from good-looking middle-aged men. Yes. Frequently with American flags or military thing or, like, religious things. And I'm like, boy, they don't know. I get some weird ones. And I just delete them. But they're obviously fake. Well, and the thing is, as Sarah pointed out, his picture showed a blonde guy. They showed the picture on the show, and I think it was the the real picture. I think I saw it somewhere else, too. A blonde guy holding a surfboard, and they're like, we live in mid-May. Well, maybe she just didn't think of that. Or maybe she thought... She's naive. She's a 15-year-old naive girl that grew up in a small town. You don't know. Yeah, he could have, she could have thought, well, he's originally from California or he did it on a vacation or... No, because I think she thought it was the the other guy. I think she thought, I think she, they had friends in common. So So you're saying he didn't look anything like the real Brian Butterfield? No, 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 not at all. And that's why the police were, when they went to question him, they were like, uh. I I have to say, and I apologize to everybody who has pictures of their cute kids and all this shit as their Facebook profile. I don't really pay a lot of attention to what somebody's profile photo looks like on Facebook. I do only if I'm curious about them, and then a lot of times they don't have it, and then you have to try to go through. Sometimes I Facebook stalk people when I read about them in the news or something. Right. I want to see. And sometimes they don't have any pictures of themselves. It's all their kids or something. Also, you know, people would say, oh, this is a social media murder and stuff. But it could, which, it, I, which I did say last time, but it really isn't. It, it could have happened. It can happen without it. It's just that social media is the tool people use. Although it also was how they got they caught him. Yes. I mean, if he didn't have computers, it would have been harder to catch. Well, him. you try to envision, yeah, how he would they, have done. Because they linked his cell phone and they linked his everything to him. Right. I mean, I mean he would have found another way. You can still do it. You can still pretend to be someone you're not and meet yes. somebody at a party yeah. or something. I mean... Mm-hmm. I mean, I think back when we were that age, you know, going to a party, there would be kids from other schools. You didn't see people as much, but you could meet yeah. somebody that could pretend to be from another school and you wouldn't really know. Right. because well, I recently read a true crime book about the girls in, I want to say, Indiana who killed a 12-year-old girl, these three or four girls. Oh, and yeah. It, and it happened in the 90s. I remember and, reading about it in People magazine. Yes. It happened in the 90s, but the amount of communication, the letters and notes they yeah. wrote each other to school and left in their lockers and stuff, it was, you know. Yeah. It, and the only difference is it's easier if people keep those to find those than to get their phone records I and know. stuff. But. Anyway. They, but that, no, that's a good one. I like it when we do a main one. It's a main one. That was a, that was a big one. I wonder if any thing, like people, you know, they have all the vigils and stuff like that and, oh, hold your kids close and stuff. But I wonder if it's changed anyone's behavior or any ways parents deal with their teenage kids. Well, or, I feel like it probably didn't. And like I said, it's not so much, I think it's just lack of attention. You know, yeah, just not like paying attention parents to Parents not knowing who their kids' friends are and... But yeah. they never did. No, I mean, they, they didn't. never. It's just like anything else, and it's easy for me to say. I'm, I'm sure everyone that has teenage kids is telling me to f- fucking shut my mouth. By the time they're in their teens, you have to hope that you have taught them some common sense, taught them to be suspicious. 
I mean, this sounds bad, but don't go down to the end of your dark road and meet a guy you don't know to get pot. But that's the other thing to bring your kids up with common sense. Also, someone says they're going to give you free pot. It's not free. Yeah, no, nothing's free, girl. E, especially when you're a girl. But also, and here's another one of my soapbox things, but I won't go on and on. Parents much more now than before don't teach kids to or don't let kids figure out at a young age how to have common sense and how to be discerning and how to use their critical thinking skills. Parents make a lot of decisions for kids and do a lot of things for kids they didn't do before. And so kids don't develop well and don't always make good choices. Not that people were always making good choices. The kids' radars aren't up because mom and maybe to a lesser extent dad are in all their stuff and the parents are think that this is their way of keeping tabs on their kids, but what they're really doing is not teaching their kids That's right. how to make decisions for themselves or do things for themselves. And then when they have to, they're stupid about it because, you know, yeah. they don't But also I would also argue that a 15-year-old girl is just... yeah. Hey, Like, the parents, okay, so, like, we have her, you know, I'm going to go get some smokes, and then the other girl, Sarah, practically living at her boyfriend's house, and she was only 16. Yeah. But, I don't know, I don't know how to put it, but it's just, sometimes, that's just the way some people are. Well, and the bottom line is... I mean, the the person responsible is the person that killed her. Yes, that's what I was going to say. Kyle... He knew what he was her doing. And knew what he was doing. And even if he didn't, even if he, he's an idiot, because even if he didn't, even if she didn't die, he was looking at 30 years for kidnapping. And kidnapping is a pretty freaking... But people, criminals, especially stupid ones, and ones who are weirdly motivated by emotional issues or psychological issues, aren't sitting there thinking, what's the sentence I can I get? know. Which is one reason the death penalty is not, yes. you know... A deterrent. People aren't weighing what sentence they're going to get. He wanted to do whatever he wanted to do with this girl, whether it was to have sex with her, scare her, kill her, or make her think he was a big hero, and he wasn't thinking of the consequences. He's a kid who drove a motorcycle 136 miles an hour, crashed into a state trooper's (laughs) cruiser, so he's obviously not someone who thinks about the consequences. That's true. Well, he's thinking about them now. That's true. So should we do our recommendation? Yeah. So what's your recommendation this week? Well, I have kind of a re-recommendation because I was trying to figure out something to watch on Amazon. And I was going to watch, I started watching that show Mindhunters, which is a show about an FBI profiler. Mm. Is it a fiction show or a documentary? Uh, it's fiction. And yeah. I everyone's raving about it, but I could not get into it. So I'm like, you know what? I haven't finished watching Master of None, the second season. So I very happily watched that. Mm. I haven't and even started And I forgot... That. How much I loved that show. I kept thinking I wasn't in the mood for that type of show because I wanted... I was just in the mood for a really good documentary of true crime. Me too. But it was worth it. And then the other thing I watched last week, I binge-watched, that I forgot how much I liked, was the second season of One Mississippi on Amazon with Tig Navarro. It's very, very good. It's such a good show, I'll and I forgot how much I love that one. That's only six episodes, the second so season. So you can watch it all in one night. Prob- yes, yeah. I did. So I'm recommending those again because 
If you haven't watched the first season of either of those, you should. They're both very, in a lot of ways, similar. Neither of them is uproariously funny. I think Master of None is probably a little bit funnier. They both have some humor situations, but the thing that I like about them is they're both, they're kind of gentle in a way. I, I don't I don't know how to say it, but there's not a lot going on in them, but they're more about the people, the characters, and their life, their day-to-day life. And But they're just really good. There's a lot of good characters. Both of them have a lot of family. The character's name in Master of None is Dev, but it's Aziz Ansari. And his real parents play his parents, and they're funny. His father's funny. Mm. And then Tig Navarro, it's based on her life, but it's not. It's actors. And her the guy that plays her brother was a lot different than her. And her stepfather, who is a father figure, her biological father isn't in the picture. I mean, it's just really... I like shows that delve into family. so... Yeah, and they're just so... That delve into family without being cliche. Or maudlin. Or they're touching with... Everything, everybody hugs at the end. The, um... Yeah, so yes, again... What would you um, compare them to for people who haven't watched them? Are there shows where there's similar humor? I'm trying to think, and I can't think of... I can compare them to each other, mainly. I can't really think of anything. But I think if you like... If you know of both of their humor, you probably know him from Parks and Recreation. I don't really know any of his stand-up. I've never seen it. Hers, I've heard a lot of her stuff on the radio, stand-up and stuff. If you know what their humor is like, you would enjoy hers. Her humor is... I don't know, she makes me laugh. And I also, I haven't watched that, but I I do like Master of None, though I haven't watched the second season. I feel like they're not afraid to talk about stuff that more standard sitcoms Yes, both of them. Her, she's race she's a sex. lesbian, and the show takes place in her hometown of Mississippi. She does talk about that she loves, she loves the place, but sometimes it's a hard place to live when mm-hmm. you're gay. And also she was sexually abused as a child which by her step-grandfather and they talk about that more in this season, which is good. And Aziz Ansari is the fact that he's Indian. You know, it's not like he dwells on it. And I will say about his show, it's one of the most diverse casts I've ever seen. And it takes place in New York City, so that makes sense. But I mean, it's just like, one of my favorite episodes of this season was just called First Date. And it was showed him on all these different dates because he's on some app that's kind of yeah. like, you know, Tinder or something. Plenty of, yeah. plenty of fish or Tinder. And he dates all these different women. And it's just, just that, just the characters, you know, all the minor characters and stuff, they're all different ethnicities, and, and which is what it's like in a big city. And it's nice to see, instead of just a token whatever right, here's the black friend and his friends are funny he's got this big a guy that's yeah i can't funny. remember his name you'd think i would because i watch it and then his his asian friend who's not then chinese asian not indian asian who's not on very often but i think he's one of the producers they're just it's just funny no, and they had a good one one i remember from last year is when he and his friend had dinner for their parents oh yes well there's some there's a lot of funny stuff going on in this one because his parents they're always bragging about how religious dev is and they're muslim and um he's not so it causes some issues you have to just see it like i said it's not like it's a big drama that all sorts of things are always happening like soap opery and and i can say this about both of these and they're not like they're a big plot driven thing or hilariously funny sitcom with a bunch of jokes but I think they're both great shows, and I love them. Well, thank you. You're that welcome. Great recommendation for mine. It's not really a recommendation. Are you going to recommend your books? <laughs> no, 
But when I'm writing, and I'm writing the third one of my Bernie O'Day mystery series, I can't read, and this isn't even a conscious choice, I just can't, I can't read my favorite genre, which is mystery fiction or crime fiction, but I find myself craving true crime, yes. so I can plagiarize ideas. Yeah. No, but, well, but it, it does you help. inspiration. I think, well, I do think it helps my creative process. Yeah. Because I'm always, so I've read a bunch, and I read a couple that had the word cruel in the title, so I thought yeah. I would try to find as many true crime books with the word cruel in the title and read all of them. Mm. It didn't work out very well. Yeah. So the best one was Cruel. I can't remember the rest something. of it. It was Cruel. By Joe McGinnis. It doesn't matter. They all have titles that you never remember yeah, I know. later, and I, know. I didn't take notes on this, so I don't remember. I could look at the Kindle on my phone, I guess. But by Joe McGinnis, which was a case that took place in North Carolina that he didn't really pursue. Somebody came to him, and it was well-written, as it always is with him, and I enjoyed reading it. The problem is, I think, part of it is because it was chosen for him, and he didn't choose it himself. The The resolution was not great. There were a lot of questions, and the questions didn't get answered, and probably never will now. It was um, a young man, a college-age kid, who killed his mother and stepfather. Hmm. And that's not a spoiler, you know it right away. There was another one that had the word cruel in it. There was the one I mentioned earlier with the four girls who killed the other, and that was well done. One of the things I realized as I'm reading, I've read like maybe half a dozen true crime books in the past two weeks, even though I have a lot of other stuff to do. It's how I yes. relax before I go to bed. I like to read. And I used to, whenever I started reading a book, would finish. Yeah, I used to do that too. I started reading one that was spurred by another one about some murders on Cape Cod. And this guy who pretty much, this bully who ran the town, and he tried to kill a police officer in the 70s, and the family had to go on the run, and there was, I think, a dateline about it that people may remember. But the writer, she wasn't that bad a writer, but she kept pounding this political agenda about how Massachusetts is sentencing and prisoners and stuff, you know, about it being too liberal, over and over and over again. And I realized one thing I really dislike in a true crime book is a writer's political agenda, no matter what it is, even if it's one I might agree with, being just pounded over and over again. I want to hear the story. And yeah. Yeah, you can hear the story and make your own conclusions. And I finally stopped reading it because I found it made the book less interesting Mm -hmm. to me. A similar one I read about, because I'm very interested in nurses who kill Mm. right now. Maybe I'll do a podcast on it and talk more about the reasons. But I started reading one by a guy who's written a lot of true crime books that was so... Poorly written in so many ways that I had to stop reading. It was one of the cruel books. I read another one by a true crime writer who I like quite a bit, Greg Olson, who I think also writes fiction, that was about, it was more about, she was a nurse, but it was more about Munchausen by proxy Mm. and had killed a child and they got her. And that that was very interesting because it went into the whole how people don't recognize it when it's happening. And one really interesting thing was that a lot of, it's mostly women who... They kind of, they don't have Munchausen by proxy. They commit Munchausen. Ah. And they're not considered mentally ill. It's more that they're a sociopath or and have the vehicle a kind they of, choose. Right. To. But a lot of them, almost a third of women who have been convicted of it, are involved in the medical field. 
Hmm. And they're very convincing. They find medical situations. Yeah, like that one with the Gypsy Rose daughter. She had been a... Yeah, I haven't seen that oh, yeah. documentary yet. But speaking of that, I read another book by a woman who was abused by her horrible parents and was a victim of Munchausen by proxy. It was interesting and well-written, but I was, sometimes you're in the mood for something, I was really looking for something that just really got into the weeds of Munchausen by proxy. And this was more about her being abused, and her parents were just fucking crazy Ugh. in a lot yeah. of ways. That almost made the Munchausen by proxy less interesting. Yeah. I mean, it was a fascinating book as far as the abuse and her trying to overcome it, but I was looking for a Munchausen by proxy book, and it was called Sickened by Julie Gregory. But you need to find a book that just says case studies on Munchausen by I proxy. guess so, but what I want to read is a, and there were a lot I was trying to look Well, at there's that. that woman that they had the dateline on, that one that was giving her son salt. Yes, I'm very interested in that one. Oh, horrible. But the Greg Olson one was, if I, Cruel Deception was the one by, so I was still kind of in the cruel. There was another one I read by a fairly popular male true crime author, and I'm not saying the authors of the ones that I'm critical of, because I just, I don't want to. So the sequence of events, and these complicated ones, that's another thing that bugs me, that if the sequence of events is too complicated, or you feel like they're getting things wrong, if they contradict themselves, it bother, bothers me. The one I'm reading right now is called The Good Nurse, and it's by, I want to say, Richard Graber. It's, a, it's an actual book I got out of the library Ooh. that I don't have in front of me, about... Probably one of America's most prolific serial killers who you've never heard of, named Charles Cullen, who was a nurse in New Jersey and Pennsylvania and killed possibly as many as 300 people. Oh, my God. And it's really well written, but the thing that bugs me about this one, besides my biggest peeve of no photos, is that there's multiple footnotes and you have to go to the back to find out what they are. He's not documenting. At first I thought, oh, he's just documenting. But a lot of it are really, really interesting things that you wonder why aren't they part of the book. Maybe he thought it would slow down the narrative. So then when I'm done, I'm going to have to go through all the footnotes. Yeah, that's happened. I've read books like that too. But my biggest peeve, and I've said this before, I'm begging true crime publishers who publish e-books Please put the photos in. The best ones are when you look in the contents, it says image gallery or photo gallery, and you can go yes. through them. Because when we I'm love reading, the photos. When I'm reading a hard co- copy one, except for this one, which has no pictures that I'm reading Ugh. now, I like to keep going to the pictures. I think and some, looking at some them. authors want to feel, I think they feel like pictures right. are. Above well, I them, heard on I mean, another below podcast, them. Or, well, I heard another podcast too. Somebody saying somebody had written a true crime book, saying, you know, you look at the photos, you know immediately who did it. You know, which is you true, do, but I still want to look. But you still want to see them because they ask just, anyone who likes to read true crime, yes, and I would say ninety nine percent of people, if not a hundred percent, want to see pictures. So. As I, I've been reading so many true crime books, I was thinking, what are the things besides photos that I really want? And what I want is a really good, well-written story. And the, mm. the Good Nurse is definitely one where they're telling the story. And Anne Rule was so good yes. at this, too. They tell the story as though, almost as if it were a novel. Well, they describe the people. And they also did a lot of interviews. Like, the guy who wrote The Good Nurse interviewed, he said in his author's notes over the years, interviewed Charles Cullen many, many, many times over the course of years. So knows what he was thinking, knows what he was feeling. Yeah. And 
keeps their opinions out of it. I don't want to read what they think, or if they want to do an author's note at the, at the end, fine. Like, one of the ones I was reading, the guy just morphed at the end into himself and what he was thinking about. I, I didn't give a shit. I've read one recently like that. But well-written... And good narrative flow and photos. The other thing is, when I was trying to find good true crime books to read, because they all look alike, they all have titles, sometimes the photos are compelling, I found a few lists, like the best true crime books, and it stunned me, aside from Anne Rule, how they were almost all, and I don't blame anybody but this, but the people making the list, all by male authors. And I'm like, There's a aside of- from Anne Rule, it was, and I'm like, don't tell me. And some of the books that I re- read recently were on some of those lists. And I'm like, these are, are not good books. So I'm just mm-hmm. saying that I just like to once again make the pitch that there are a lot of good female writers, but people tend to... They pay attention gra- more, pay to, the attention more to the male yeah, ones. Yeah, they do. They do in fiction as so, well, as we know. So I'm all true crime all the time right now. Okay. I can't read anything else. All right. I'll remember that. And that's this week's show. You can find us on our website, first of all. Crimeandstuffonline.com <laughs> on Facebook, Crime and Stuff. On Instagram. And please rate and review. Rate uh, and review. Thank you for the nice reviews. Yes, and thank you for the emails. And keep them coming. Yes. And keep listening and recommend us to your friends. Thank you. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Bye-bye. As I said, a young girl, young woman goes missing. Mm-hmm. Goes missing. Mm-hmm. A young woman disappears. Mm-hmm. You can cut out the goes. I tried Maybe to I'll avoid saying that. Just so, I, just so I can say I fucking hate that phrase. I know you do.